0: everybody, this is Michael Holland for Film Music Media. Today I'm speaking with composer Edwin Wendler, who has been very busy this year writing three scores in the horror genre. He wrote the music for Tales of Halloween, I Speak on Your Grave, Part 3, Vengeance is Mine, and Unnatural. Thank you so much for joining me today, Edwin.
1: Thank you for having me, Michael. This is exciting. Thank you. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Edwin, I would like to start off the conversation with Tales of Halloween. Um, as I understand, the film was divided into ten different segments, one of which was scored by you and directed by Mike Mendez. Um, please tell me something about this particular segment, or the project in general, um, and how you approach it with the director.
1: Sure. Um, Tales of Halloween started when basically a group of friends who also happened to be horror fans and horror movie directors came together. And it was initiated by Axel Carolyn. Uh, it was her concept to do an anthology movie uh, of uh, several episodes that are somewhat loosely connected, but they're all set in the same night and uh, so her and uh, director Mike Mendez developed the project and they asked other directors to come on board and that's how that happened and uh, I first met uh, director Mike Mendez uh, through Unnatural which is as you just mentioned another horror movie and Mike had done a first edit on that movie and that's how I met him and we talked a little bit at the cast and crew screening and uh, so he eventually asked me if I wanted to write music for that segment, and he invited me over, showed it to me, and he was very animated. He was sitting in his chair singing along with the picture, and uh, I thought it was a lot of fun. You know, it's, it, I, I thought it was very inventive. I don't know if, if we can give away the big surprise. The movie is released, but it's, it basically it sets up uh, a cliché scenario of a murderer hunting down his prey and, and killing her. And then something completely wacky and uh, crazy happens, um, and eventually the body gets revived. And uh, yeah, from from that moment on, it becomes basically a splatter kind of movie, and it's a lot of fun. It's it's done so well with visual effects and everything, um, and I just had a lot of fun working on it. The first portion of it uh, is actually scored by uh, Joseph Bishara, yep. and then as soon as the craziness starts, my music comes in. <laughs> <laughs> so uh, and and I think Joseph's music works extremely well. It's very serious, uh, appropriately so, because at that point the audience still thinks this is a traditional kind of horror segment, uh, and then when the craziness starts, you know, we go to the the, the wacky composer Edwin Wendler as opposed to the series <laughs> Joseph Bishara, <laughs> But, uh, it, as I said, it was a lot of fun and uh, I, I, I like the, um, the in-your-face quality of the segment which allowed me to do something similar with the music.
0: Okay, um, if my information is correct, um, the entire movie runs for, I think, um, just about a hundred minutes
1: I think so, yes.
0: Um, So how long is the episodes or respectively the segments that you worked on?
1: I think it's something like seven, seven and a half minutes, something like that. And they had to keep, of course, all the segments at around that length. Um, But, you know, one... I talked to somebody who hadn't seen the movie and they said, well, I'm a little concerned that, you know, there's just not enough time to set up anything interesting. And, you know, before you can start getting invested in the characters and the situations, it's already over and you're off to the next segment. But surprisingly, that that did not happen. At least I don't think so. You know, I think the directors uh, and writers and everybody who worked on those did a really good job in setting something up in a very short amount of time getting a message across and telling an interesting story and then bringing it to some sort of interesting close before we move on to the next one. So I, I think it does make a, a very good experience from a storytelling point of view.
0: Okay. Um, how much time did you actually have to compose the music for this episode?
1: Um, I did not have a lot of time. Uh, I sort of came in at the very, very end. They were in the middle of post-production and, um, I think they were just about to, um, start, uh, on the dub stage, you know, where, uh, the sound effects, dialogue and the music all come together. So that was, that was, uh, going to happen pretty soon. So I think I only had something like two days to do this. Um, I, um... I basically worked overnight I think I I did an overnighter on it and I sent it off to Mike um, allowing enough time to do revisions Um, but Mike then let me know that he loved everything he had no notes you know approved as is and which made me very happy Um, but it's something very unusual you know I, I I felt and I hoped that I got the tone right Um, that I was able to give him what he wanted. But you never know for sure, you know, especially if you work with somebody for the first time, which was the case with Mike here. Um, But I was really, really happy that he responded well to it, and it basically ended up in the movie um, as is, as they say.
0: Okay, so basically no trouble at all.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it was just, you know, it was a fun ride. And uh, uh, I think Mike was very, very clear in, in communicating what he wanted. He wanted a, a score that was very active, um, and was um, you know hard hitting in places, um, and uh, you know like I I couldn't help but think of uh, Friday the Thirteenth. You know, my segment is called Friday the Thirty-first, switching the two digits around. Um, you know, putting a twist to something like uh, Friday the Thirteenth. So I I felt that my music should should kind of um, Pay homage to uh, Harry Manfredini's music for that franchise, which, which is music that I adore. I, I absolutely love uh, what uh, Harry Manfredini did. You know, that set that uh, came out was released by La La Land Records of parts uh, yeah. one through six. Yes. I lis- I listened to that in in one sitting, basically. I You know, I, one CD went in when it came out, the other one went into the CD player I couldn't stop listening. It's just so well done. Um, and I especially love part six and I was very happy when I ran into Harry Manfredini at a signing event and I was able to tell him how much I loved particularly part six. And he said, Oh yeah, I'm glad you noticed. We had more we had a bigger budget on that one. And I said, Well it, it also sounds to me like you had a lot of fun doing it and he, he confirmed that. So that, that that's a nice moment that I'll remember talking to Harry Manfredini about uh, Friday the 13th, part 6.
0: <laughs> well, yeah, I, I mean, I absolutely enjoyed the music by Um Harry as well. I think it's very well done and um, totally iconic. And yeah. um, I remember watching um, the first part on uh, on DVD. And there was also um, just a little featurette uh, where, where uh, the composer talked about how he actually approached it. And it was really interesting. And I really liked it.
1: Yeah, he's he's just an incredibly gifted composer, you know. I I love his other scores as well, particularly House and House 2. Yeah. I think that that's a fantastic album. It, it's so entertaining and the music works brilliantly in the movies.
0: Absolutely, absolutely. Um in in case of um Pets of Halloween, um so basically Mike Mendes... Uh, gave you a lot of freedom, he just gave you one or two instructions um, and basically let you do your thing if I could sum it up that way.
1: Pretty much yes, I mean it, it was it was pretty clear what the music was supposed to do you know sometimes you you start on a scene and it can go several different ways and you know even if the the director communicates very well there are still options for the music. Um, but in this case, uh, I mean, if, especially if, if you if you see the segment, you know precisely what is required of the music. Um, it's just basically, I mean, the, I call the track Limb Chop loser because that's yeah. that's what happens is, you know, limbs are being chopped off left and right. And it's, it's basically a celebration of, of the splatter genre, sub-genre of horror. Um, and so the music just needed to be completely wild and and uh i hope that's what i accomplished
0: <laughs> um so basically you also didn't have to write many versions of the piece or of the pieces of limchapalooza
1: yeah no it's like the first version is what was approved
0: <laughs> that's a dream for a composer actually right
1: <laughs> yeah it, it doesn't happen often you know it may have had something to do with the with the schedule mm-hmm. but i i really think mike really loved what I did so I'm I'm I was very glad about, very happy with that
0: great um, Edwin did they actually um, temp track the segments uh, or were you working on it without any temp guide because usually um, basically everything is temp um, in one way or another um, mm-hmm. did this um, happen uh, on this project
1: there, there was a temp, uh, but I don't think I listened to it. I may have heard it once, um, but I really wanted to go with what Mike was communicating. Because, as I said, at one point he was he was getting very animated as we were watching the segment, and he started singing. And I'm like, well, I better listen carefully <laughs> um, and and have that be more important than the temp. So I just went with uh, his singing basically and, and and uh went from there.
0: It's great. Um yeah, I have um yet to see Tales of Halloween, I must admit. Um <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I will get to it eventually.
1: I think you like it, it's getting a lot of good buzz.
0: Yeah, well I've I've come across um some reviews on, on the internet and well, mm-hmm. it's um it's kind of interesting, yeah. It is. <laughs> yeah. Edwin, um, 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 now I'd like to um, talk about the next project, um, which was called um, I Spit on Your Grave Part 3, Vengeance is Mine. How did you actually prepare yourself for a film of this kind?
1: Well, I Spit in Your Grave 3 um, is the, of the three horror movies that we're talking about, is the one that I worked on last, but it was released first. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but uh it um yeah, it, it 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 was a result of a recommendation. Mike Mendes recommended me to Cinetel Films uh who produced which is a company that produced I Spit New New Grave 3. And uh originally he pitched me for another movie which I ended up not getting, but they kept me in mind and um the post-production supervisor and one of the co-producers of uh, Spit3. His name is Adam Driscoll. He checked out my website and he came across music from a movie that I had written called Broken Angel. Huh? And he thought that that might be the right kind of vibe uh, for Spit3, so he presented it to Lisa Hansen, uh, one of the producers, and she responded well to it and um, eventually I, I got the gig. So that's uh, what led to that project, and how did I approach it? Well, um, I was sent uh, an early edit of the movie, so I, wa- I was able to watch the whole thing front to back, so I knew what I was, what I was getting myself into. And you know, it's like the, the, the franchise is known for its graphic violence, yeah. But there, there's much more to it, and and I think particularly in the third movie, you have basically a thriller. It's it's a, it's a murder thriller you know part of it is murder mystery um and it's it's a character study more than it is a splatter kind of movie you have moments of violence and very graphic violence but that doesn't seem to be the main content so uh i i really felt attracted to the the thriller portion of it uh more than the violence although that was fun too i have to admit
0: <laughs> um yeah i remember um I've come across the, um, the the first part of um, I Spit on a Grave years ago, and mm-hmm. um, I've only seen it once, and uh, I must admit it was rather um, hard to watch. Uh, but,
1: yes, yes, uh, cringe-inducing, as they say. <laughs> oh, absolutely, you can say that again. <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, when did you meet with director R.D. Brownstein?
1: Well, R.D. Brownstein, I I never met him, actually, because uh, at the time that uh, I was asked to write the music, R.D. had left the project, and um, he he was no longer involved. I don't know why, and I never asked, Um, but uh, my uh, communications about creative stuff all happened with Adam Driscoll and uh, the main producer of the movie, uh, Lisa Hansen. So I got notes from Lisa and Adam and responded to those.
0: So basically an exclusive communication with the producer in
1: charge. That's right. Yes. And but Lisa has been there from the very beginning. So um you know she she knew what was required of the franchise probably better than anybody else. And uh, and but you know, as as I said before um, in, in in other interviews, they they wanted a different sound for this movie because, um, as as your listeners may know, it's it's a sequel to the first movie, the twenty ten version of *I Spit on Your Grave*. Yeah. And so we have the same main character, but um, it's a very different setting. You know, the setting in the first movie is rural. In this third movie, it's urban. And uh, the main character has changed. She wants to move on. She wants to make a new life for herself. Um, and so they, they wanted, uh, Lisa really, really wanted the audience to genuinely feel something for the main character, feel sympathy or empathy for her because she has had a very traumatic experience. And all she wants to do is just have a regular life. You know, We see her work at a regular job, a nine-to-five desk job. Um, She just wants to blend in with society, you know, she doesn't want to be special in the negative way that her experiences have made her special and um, Yeah, and of course her plans are are not working out the way she would like them to and uh, Yeah, which is what makes this interesting, I guess
0: (laughs) (laughs) Okay Um, Edwin, how was your schedule on this project? Did you feel that time was sufficient?
1: Well, they, they told me in the very beginning that I was going to have uh, five weeks' time, which is, uh, you know, not crazy. Um, but then, um, as we progressed to the first spotting session, um, they actually had a conversation with a distributor during the spotting session. Uh, the distributor called and informed them that the, uh, the deadline needed to be moved. Uh, so the five weeks became four weeks. And the reason for that was that they just needed to manufacture the DVDs and Blu-rays, so they so they hit the stores um, early enough to, uh, to be a successful sale for Halloween. Because, you know, if, if you release a, a movie for Halloween, you want it to be in stores at least a couple of weeks ahead of Halloween, so there's enough time, because after Halloween, interest for a horror movie will decrease it's just the nature of the beast Absolutely. so so they had to hit that deadline so i only had four weeks so it was pretty intense um and i didn't get much sleep but i really enjoyed the process you know it's um as i usually say you know even if the deadline is crazy or there's some sort of weird political situation i can always find uh, joy just working on the music and that's that's what happened here you know and um, I got great feedback from Adam and Lisa, um, they trusted me to do something interesting and once all the music was delivered, they were very happy with it. They said, you know, it's, it's very, very different from what we were expecting, but they were quick to say that it's different in a good way, um, maybe a bit more complex than what they initially expected. Uh, But they were very, very happy in the end, which made me happy. So, it it was a good collaboration.
0: So, basically, all of you came out very pleased at the end, the producers and you as the composer.
1: Yes, and and I was asked to participate in the dub mix, uh, which which doesn't happen often these days. It used to be the norm, I think, but, but now it's sort of an exception that the composer is invited to the dub mix. So um, I was there on the dub stage, and uh, I was able to give some notes which were very welcome. Um, and I just I felt welcome throughout the whole process. And it, it uh, uh, you know, of course, when you have a compressed deadline, there are challenges. And I told Lisa in the beginning, you know, the, the calendar and the clock may not cooperate with us, but I will work very, very hard to give you everything you want on every single scene. And uh, I hope that's what I accomplished. Um, it, it was not easy, but uh, you know that's that just comes with the territory. <laughs> uh, but uh, it was a lot of fun, and, and and to me it was sort of an adrenaline rush, getting through everything and making sure every I, I covered everything. Um, yeah, so that that's that's basically what happened on i spit in a Grave Three.
0: <laughs> Great, I mean film is a team effort to begin with and just when you tell me that you were invited also to the dub stage i mean that's um, that's very very um very nice um to begin with i mean like i said it's a, it's a team effort and when everybody pitches in that ultimately you get a better result. At least that's my, that's my take on it.
1: Exactly, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and I was really glad that I was uh, able to be useful on the dub stage. You know, I, There were a couple of scenes where, because, uh, let me backtrack a little, as I was working on the movie, as I was writing the music, what I was listening to in terms of sound effects were temporary sound effects. Uh, some of them were very good, I have to say, but they were just temporary. So, and it was only uh, when I was sitting uh, um, with everybody else uh, at the dub stage, that I was able to hear the final sound effects, which were, of course, much better. and But some of them were quite different from the temporary sound effects, which affected the music. And I was really glad that I was able to be there and immediately tell the dub mixer, you know, please go to this specific track and maybe take down the volume of just that track. So, when I deliver music, I give them what is called splits or stems, which means that the, uh, my music is split into several different, in, in the case of uh, I spit in New Grave 3, it was nine different splits. Um, so, when you play all of them concurrently, you get the music. But it gives you the ability to quickly go into one of the stems and change the volume or even mute it. Um, because of dialogue or sound effects, or something that you didn't anticipate as a composer. Um, so I was really glad that I was there, uh, you know, helping the dub mixer lo- locate those areas of the music and make quick adjustments um, to make room for the new sound effects. Great. Um, given
0: the tight schedule of the movie, how many hours a day do you actually have to work to meet the deadline?
1: Uh, I worked pretty much around the clock, you know I, I, I would break uh, to grab a bite to eat, but that was pretty much it. Um, I was, I was kind of merged with that chair after a while. Um, and uh, yeah, you just you just work your way through the, uh, through what's required. Uh, on every project, I have, as I'm sure does every composer, I have this uh, chart, um, you know. Thank you, Google Drive and and uh, um, Google Docs. Um, I have a chart that that shows what progress I'm making, and it shows me uh, how many minutes of music I still have to write, how many minutes of music I have to uh, re- revise, and uh, so you know. I, I know how many minutes of music I have to write per day. Like on on I spit in a grave three, it was approximately 82 minutes of music. So I had to write something like, you know, four minutes of music per day, uh, which is which is not easy. But and and you know on some days it you make more progress than on others. Um, but you do try to get those four minutes uh, done pretty much before you go to sleep, or before you take a nap, I should say. <laughs>
0: <laughs> you're, not, you're not getting that much sleep then. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah it, was, it was naps, basically. And, um, uh, you know, I, I, as I was working, sometimes what happens is when I'm very, very tired, I fall asleep while working, which, which is not a good thing. And to <laughs> me, it's, it's, to me, it signals to me, okay, my body needs rest, at least for a little while. So and that's when I usually lie down and I take a nap like 2 or 3 hours and then I'm ready to go again. It's you know it's pretty extreme and probably not very healthy but you know I I felt that it was necessary to get the work done in the time given.
0: Absolutely. I mean I think it's um it happens to many composers and you oftentimes hear these stories where um composers um say that they were basically up for 35 36 hours straight. Um, in order to make a deadline, in order to deliver the cue either for the director or the producer. And um, it sounds really, really stressful.
1: Yes. And, you know, not many composers talk about this, but, you know, I guess your body adjusts after a while to a crazy schedule. And then after it, you have to sort of find back into regular, the regular rhythm of life. Um, and, and there's an adjustment period that, <laughs> that happens. Uh, but, you know, after enough experience, uh, you, you know what to expect. Um, not, that, not that it gets easier, but, uh, you know, you, you learn more about yourself and what your body can tolerate in terms of sleep hours. Like the, the craziest thing I probably ever did was when I worked with Paul Haslinger yep. uh, on a movie called Into the Blue. And I did MIDI preparation and what Paul calls pre-orchestration. And uh, so, you know, the closer we got to the recording date, we recorded at Tadeo with a 50-piece orchestra, uh, the the less time I had, you know, for the work that needed to be done. Mm -hmm. So I just slept less and less. And like the the last, I want to say, 48 hours or so, I didn't sleep at all. And so, then there were three days of, of scoring uh, and I, I don't think I slept much during those three days, you know, maybe a, a nap here or there. But then at the end of it, I had a long drive ahead of me um, from Tadeo scoring to uh, Long Beach where I lived at the time. And that was probably the craziest drive of my life. I was, I was driving, I was constantly afraid of falling asleep. I was literally screaming at myself <laughs> in order to keep myself awake. Um, and I swore to myself that I would never do that again. You know, I'd rather pay out of my own pocket for a hotel room in the area and get a good night's rest before driving home because that was, that was uh, more dangerous than it should have been.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. Sound- so, <laughs> so you
1: learn, you learn your lesson and hopefully you you'll survive through that learning period. <laughs>
0: I mean, these incredibly tight schedules. I think that's one aspect of film scoring um, that, like you said, you have to get accustomed to. Mm-hmm. But I think it's a major problem also for um, young, aspiring composers. Um, but because basically, when you decide to become a film composer, not only do you have to be able to write good music, but you also have to be able to. Uh, put up with the extreme hours like we like like you just said and I think uh, obviously it's pretty hard to handle and um, that's well one of the aspects that are I think frightening to some composers
1: yeah and you're absolutely right and in addition there's all kinds of other things that just cannot be taught in school you know you can you can um... A, a wonderful composer with all the training in the world and that does not prepare you for a lot of the real-life scenarios that, ha- that can happen you know as you said the crazy schedules the lack of sleep um, you know and, and obviously as a composer on, on, a, on a movie or, or anything that's uh, you know media related you have to be a team player you're just one of many people working on the same thing And you have to cooperate and make adjustments and and address notes uh, and be collaborative. And sometimes that can be a bit difficult for composers.
0: Absolutely. Mm. I mean, also due to the fact that, um, of course, you have a director you're working with. And sometimes there are, you know, six, seven producers. Then you get the associate producers, the executive producers, and um, everybody pitches in. And of course, you get all these different opinions.
1: Exactly, too many cooks sometimes. <laughs> Absolutely,
0: yeah. and um, in the at the end of the day, you have to you have to please everybody basically. And I think um, it's it might be a constant uh, battle um, for for a composer just to to please everybody that is involved with the project.
1: Yes, yes, and and sometimes you have different factions that form. Um, and, you know, it's like I, I usually say if there are several people involved, I usually ask for a point person. And that's that's good advice in general. You know, you just ask for one person that gives all the notes. So you get some sort of consensus before the note even gets to you. Um, that, that is very important. And it's a huge time saver because you can spend a lot of time writing different pieces of music for the same scene. And some people will like it, others won't. Um, and it's it's you know that that's good if you have a lot of time but if you don't have a lot of time it can really eat away at your schedule and you you want to avoid that as best as possible
0: okay Um, in terms of um I speak on your grave I know that um many composers discuss certain things also with the director of photography um, the DP about certain colors um, and many other things. Has mm-hmm. that happened to you on this particular project or any project at all?
1: Um, no, not really. I mean um, on I spit in a Grave 3 the cinematographer is Richard uh, Violet or VLA, I, I'm not sure to pronounce his name, and I, I never met him or talked to him. Um, on Unnatural Um, The DP was Mark Carter, and uh, he was the one who got me the job in the first place because he recommended me and my music to the director, Hank Braxton. Um, And even though I know Mark, uh, I never really talked to him about the music. Um, I just responded to to his cinematography. But also, um, cinematography can change... Um, during the post-production process, you know, as you know, there is this process called um, color correction and color timing.. Yeah. And so you know like it, it was particularly uh, strong, I think, in the case of unnatural, where uh, the color timing really changed um, and, and really improved the picture. Um, but it was also to a certain degree the case on a spit in a Grave three. Um, and, uh, you know, many other products where, you know, the, the, the work print that you're composing music for um, just needs several adjustments. Um, uh, in, in general, work prints tend to be more um, pale, I guess. The, you know, the colors are less saturated. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, shadows are less pronounced. Mm-hmm. Um, so, it's, it's, it's kind of nice to see it all come to fruition at the end. Um, but, you know, after having gone through several of those projects, I sort of know what to expect and how much better it will look at the, at the, in the end. So I, I try to adjust my music accordingly. But uh, in general, you at least in my experience, I most often talk to directors and producers and, um, and editors. Editors can be very involved in the process. Uh, but cinematographers at that point usually have moved on to the next project. You know, their their work is no longer required unless they're, uh, you know, pickups or reshoots or stuff of uh, of that kind.
0: Yeah, I mean, of course, it also um, depends on how early you get involved with the project, of course. Yeah, obviously.
1: Yes, exactly, yeah.
0: Um, Did you write and perform the entire score all by yourself? Or did you have guest performers coming in for the guitar part? Or how did you... Um, handle the vocal part on I Spit On A Grave.
1: Yeah, on I Spit On A Grave 3, um, it's primarily electronics, samples and synths, yeah. um, but uh, we did have a vocalist, her name is Erily Brighton, she's wonderful to work with, and uh, she's best known for her ethereal voice, you know, she has a, a beautiful voice. Absolutely, Um, but in but in this case, I asked her to, I actually asked her to perform as though she was pissed off, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, um, because uh, you know there's a main theme in the movie, and I wanted the main theme, the melody itself, to be lyrical and beautiful and slightly mournful and tragic. Um, But as I said, you know, it it it's the melody itself. It was important to me uh, should be beautiful. Because uh, what the main character aspires to is justice. And justice is a noble thing in itself. But the execution of that plan is where things go crazy in a movie. And that's why I wanted um, Ashley or Early Brighton to perform uh, in in sort of an edgy kind of way. And as I said, as though she was pissed off. Um, And also what often happens with vocals is that uh, composers um, or arrangers uh, apply pitch correction to a performance, you know, what's sometimes called, uh, auto tune. Yeah. Um, uh, but in this case, you know, I only applied it in, 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 certain cases. Um, but I, I, I wanted to have that roughness and the unpolished nature of her performance because it was intentional. And, uh, and I wanted to, to keep as much of it intact. Also, you, you may notice that, uh, in the score, uh, her voice is never really clear. It's always sent through filters and yep. and through weird effects and panned in weird directions um, to to make it sound weirder. So I, I hope that I have achieved that effect of having a, a, a lyrical, hopefully beautiful melody, but the the arrangement and the execution of it is is weird and kind of strange and, and kind of sick, because let's face it, you know, we, we have somebody here who is uh, kind of sick in the head.
0: <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, abs, abs, that's mildly put, yeah. <laughs> um, well, you came up with a palette of harsh and sometimes downright frightening and also very interesting sounds for for the score. Um, but I think my personal Favorites of was the um, the music that I think you wrote for for the end title,
1: mm-hmm.
0: which has this uh, rock guitar approach and also um, the beautiful vocals, and I think that was really my favorite track of the uh, entire album. Yeah.
1: Yeah. Thank you. Well, the, the very first thing I wrote is now the second half of the end credits. So it's when the 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 music you know the end credits start with this very wild arrangement of a secondary theme and then the main theme comes in and the music calms down a bit so that was the very first thing I wrote actually as a demo uh, to get the job and it, it, it uh, was one of the things that uh, made me uh, get the job in the end so and it's pretty much intact like uh, I made a couple of arrangement changes uh, I took out a few measures here and there to fit the length of the end credits but other than, than that, it's pretty much what I delivered as my first demo for the movie.
0: Alright. Um, if I remember correctly, you told me beforehand that you were working on an album for the score. Um, is it likely to be a digital downloads when everything is completed? Or could fans of your mu- music also expect a physical CD?
1: Well, this one is going to be an old-fashioned CD release. There's actually no digital album planned right now. It's going to be just a CD, <laughs> really which, is, which is like uh, very unusual these days.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, many people um, seem to be craving for digital downloads because it's just, you know simpler for them you you don't have to buy a cd it doesn't take us take up as um, as much space as the yeah. inter, as the entire c- CD collection does um but I think w- luckily there are still some collectors out there that want um the physical release which is also of course um the kind of release that i prefer
1: yes uh i'm I'm in the same boat i I love the booklets I love reading the liner notes of course you now have the digital booklets but there's no guarantee that those are included and i love seeing the credits you know if i hear a cool performance by a musician i want to know who that musician was or if i hear that something is very well engineered or there's something really interesting going on in the mix i want to know who the music scoring mixer is and that's sometimes information that gets lost on digital albums and i think it's a sad thing Absolutely. Plus, of plus of course as a collector you know you can have your booklet signed which is an added bonus <laughs>
0: Yeah, absolutely. <laughs>
1: yeah. Well, I'm 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 very very lucky um that I have uh signed booklets from Jerry Goldsmith and Elmer Bernstein. Really? Um yes, yes. So, uh yeah, th- those are my treasured possessions. But of course, as you probably know, my partner Peter Hackman, he's the master of of autographs. Uh he has thousands and thousands of autographed booklets and uh, movie memorabilia. Okay. Uh, so yeah. <laughs> um, which
0: which score of Goldsmith uh, do you have in your procession that is signed?
1: Oh, it's the re-recording of the Sand Pebbles. Oh, great! The, I love the, that one. the the Varese re-recording. Yeah, I was able to attend a seminar that he gave at UCLA, and I sneaked in the booklet, <laughs> and and he was kind enough to sign it there.
0: Great! I love that score. That's a really great yeah.
1: Score. And, I, you know, I wanted to pick something that I knew he was he was proud of. You know, I know that there are some scores probably that he didn't remember too fondly. But, you know, this was a re-recording that he had conducted. So I thought, you know, he must really like it. And it must be meaningful to him. So that's why I picked that one.
0: Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a great recording. It's a great Yeah, recording. it is. One of my favorite um, Jerry Goldsmith scores. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I would like to to move on to Unnatural. Um, This has been recently released digitally, but um, there is a limited edition in the works if I am informed correctly.
1: Yes, well in terms of a soundtrack album, you're right. Uh, There is a a digital version out on iTunes, Amazon MP3 and all the major um, digital album retailers. Um but also there's a limited edition CD that currently is available on vereseraband.com and this is a first I believe in Band's history it is signed every every CD will come with an extra booklet that's signed by not only me but also director Hank Braxton. Great. Yeah. And we also signed in different colors so it's 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 very colorful. <laughs> Which is nice because the the album cover itself is sort of grayish looking, gray and white. So we thought a little color might help.
0: (laughs) Yes, it's a very cool cover. I like that one. (laughs)
1: Thanks. (laughs)
0: Um, As you just mentioned, you worked with Hank Braxton on this one. How did you communicate as to how the film would be approached musically? um, And did Hank have any specific instructions for you?
1: Yes, he did. Well, as I mentioned earlier, I was introduced to Hank by cinematographer Mark Carter.
0: Right.
1: Uh, we just met at a cafe and then later at uh, at their uh, editing place. And we just talked and I immediately noticed, and I've said this before, uh, it, it really, really is true. I immediately noticed that everybody working with Hank really liked the guy. Mm-hmm. There was this friendly back and forth between him and everybody, you know, this kind of joking, kind of laid back atmosphere. And I was thinking, I really want to work with the guy. And uh, and I was very lucky that it eventually happened. And so when we first sat down and we spotted the movie, uh, there was temp music in it. And Tank told me to not pay too much attention to it because he thought that in place it it was too too active and too over the top. Uh, he wanted to have something that was a bit more restrained. And he kept saying using the word cold. He wanted everything to feel like the bitter cold of winter, um, because the movie takes place in Alaska. Yeah. And uh, so that was really his main direction for the music. And we talked about uh, music for other horror movies that he thought worked really well, and I agreed with, you know, things to aspire to, if you will. Um, but then pretty much from then on, I had the freedom to, to do what I thought was work, worked best for each scene, and, of course, there was the usual process of show-and-tell sessions where it would present music and it would get feedback and make adjustments. Um, but for the most part, um, Hank was really, really happy with the music. And I remember particularly one show-and-tell session where we went through the entirety of Reel 3, which is like each Reel has a, approximately 20 minutes. And so we went through the whole thing. And at the end of it, I asked, so what are your notes? And Hank just said, I have none. It all works really, really well. And he said, you know, you really have a gift of, of, underst- of uh, making music work to picture and understanding how they, uh, how they relate to each other. So, it was really one of the best uh, uh, collaborative relationships I've ever had, because I felt that I had an understanding of what it is that the director wanted. And even if there was a note, I felt that I immediately understood of, uh, how to address that note and how to make fixes. Great, and uh, so there was really, really good communication and a great deal of trust from Hank and also director Ron. uh, I'm sorry, producer Ron Carlson. Uh, It just went really, really well. I had a lot of fun.
0: Was time also a factor uh, on this one, like on "I Spit on Your Grave," or did you have more freedom here? On
1: on unnatural, there was there was more time. I would say that I had something like uh, six weeks for the initial movie and and I say initial movie because I scored the whole movie and then a few months later um, I was asked to score additional scenes um, because uh, several distributors had been approached and they wanted the length of the movie to change and uh, they wanted more material so they inserted a scene that they had originally cut out and they filmed some new material Um, so I got to score that, which was interesting because I I got to revisit something that I thought was done, but I was able to expand on some of the material. Um, And, uh, yeah, so it it was nice to revisit that world, even if it was for a little while. But, yeah, I would say all in all, it was probably eight weeks, something like that, seven or eight weeks for everything. Okay.
0: Um, Looking back, would you... Change certain parts of the music, or are, or are you um, entirely pleased with it?
1: Well, I think this happens to all composers. You know, when when they sit at a cast and crew screening or at a premiere screening of their work, or when they listen to their music on an album, there, there's always room for improvement. You know, you just do the best that you can um, with the time given, and uh, you know sometimes things don't occur to you after the. 17th time you've watched it or you've listened to it in context and suddenly you get an idea and you're like ah i think it would have been better to do this and that for that scene but of course it's too late um because the movie is already done <laughs> but uh yeah so i mean stuff like that happens to everybody who works on movies you know directors producers actors they always want to go back and, and change things to you know is, but what can you do? You know, you have to kiss a project goodbye and move on to the next one.
0: Um, would you say that for you personally, um, pressure is something that um, stirs up your imagination, or would you like to have maybe, let's say, twelve to fourteen weeks to write a score?
1: That's a that's a very very good question. I think there is a limit. You know, there's a limit where uh, a, a crazy schedule changes from being inspiring to being um, almost, I don't, I don't want to use the word dangerous, but um, yeah, I mean, th- th- there, is, there is this very fine line where once you cross it, you have to compromise on stuff that you really, really don't want to compromise on, but you have no choice and that's a very uncomfortable place to be in and fortunately for me i've never been in that place but i imagine it to be uh, you know really frustrating because you know like uh, it 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 would force you to you know maybe find help or you know sleep less or you, you're not you you're not faced with any good options anymore um but as I said, fortunately for me, that ne- that has never happened. And in the case of I spit in your Grave three where the, where the, um, where the schedule is very compressed, I was still able to enjoy myself through the, through the entirety of the project. Um, but I can imagine that that has to be very difficult when when you face a situation where no matter what you do, you can't get all the work done in time. Yeah, so uh, my, my heart goes out to everybody who is in that kind of situation. <laughs>
0: Um, previously, we talked about um, the temp tracks, and you know, the temp always seems to be uh, more or less a big issue with many composers. Um, what is your point of view on temp tracks in general?
1: In general, I think temp tracks are very helpful in, in communicating. Um, I think they work best when they are just good enough to get an idea across, but not fantastic in a way that the director or producer falls in love with it. You know, that's the sweet spot that you want to have in a temp. Because it means that you can you still have room to uh, to improve, uh, to bring up your own ideas, to try out things, uh, to maybe even go a completely different direction because the, the client is not married yet to the temp music. Um, so I would say overall they're helpful, um, and uh, directors in general understand their function. Uh, but occasionally, of course, you, you do get a director or producer who really want the composer to replicate the temp music beat for beat. Um, and sometimes even, you know, like I, I worked on a movie once where I felt that we were going really, really close to the temp. Uh, and I was still getting notes like, uh, you know, yeah, in the temp I hear this high-pitched percussion going on. That's that's not there in your music. Please put it there. And I'm thinking, well, then it's ju- then it's basically reverse engineering. You're reverse engineering what another composer thought worked best for a yes. completely different, completely different movie. Um, so the the creativity just goes out the door, and you you basically recreate something. Um, and you do your best to make it different enough to avoid any sort of legal action from somebody. Um, but it's, it's not a great place to be in as a composer because all composers in the end just want to be creative beings and want to be trusted and they want their input to be valued to a certain degree. But, you know, it's I'm I'm happy for the work and if it means that you have to recreate something, then I'll do my best to do that while not completely destroying my integrity as an artist. Um, and that sometimes can be difficult, but I, I don't think it's impossible.
0: Yeah, well I think that, um, like you said, it's good to have some sort of guideline, you know, just mm-hmm. to, to set a mood, okay, this is the mood I think you should go with as a composer, but personally. I don't think that any artists um, should be influenced too strongly, because I think that um, that might be a reason that um, some scores tend to sound rather similar, because it, a composer is asked to deliver something that comes really, really close to the temp track, like 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 you just said. So yes, I, the... I agree from a creative standpoint, um, it's really difficult.
1: Yeah, yeah. And it's also very important to talk about temp music, you know, not only in general, but very specifically um, for each scene. Because sometimes it it happens that um, I think, you know, I just assume that the temp is setting a direction and I follow that direction and I do something that's similar in mood. Um, and then the director tells me, why did you do that? I hated the temp. And all I can say is, well, thank you for telling me. I wish you would have told me earlier. <laughs> um, but, you know, sometimes directors just forget or, or they think they told you and they didn't. Or you think, uh, you know, or maybe they told you and you forgot. Um, but that, that's why I'm saying it's, it's very important to talk about temp and, and approaches for each scene. Um, so that that you and the director are on the same page.
0: Okay. In general, when you're starting to work on a movie, um, do you prefer watching a rough cut of the movie or do you find inspiration just from the story that the director is pitching to you or maybe from a a screenplay?
1: Well, as I'm sure you hear this from many other composers, inspiration can come from from anything that's related to the movie. You know, uh, visiting the set can be inspiring. Watching early footage can be inspiring. Uh, An an early sketch of a character can be inspiring. Uh, Or a screenplay. Um, But in most cases, of course, uh, what's most inspiring is when you watch, or at least a rough edit of the movie, and you get an idea of the story and of the mood and the rhythm of the scenes that's when the the creative juices really start going Um, but yeah and and sometimes it happens that the director may have a vision uh, for a scene that you totally get initially and that everybody gets but for some reason uh, maybe reasons that are completely out of the control of the filmmakers it ends up not being that it ends up being something else in that case often directors hope that music can make a difference and sometimes it can and in in a few cases it, it you know no matter what you do as a composer you cannot capture that initial idea because what ended up on screen is just too different um, and as i keep saying music cannot say concrete things it can only uh, hint at things it, it can um, help you find the right emotion for a scene but it cannot be super specific or or the way of specificity that you can achieve in cinematography and acting is something that's very difficult to achieve in music, I think. But it can help.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Um, Edwin, what are your plans for the future? Um, Is there any specific genre you would like to write for?
1: Well, my favorite genre always has been the fantasy genre, fantasy and science fiction, because those are the movies that I grew up with as a kid, you know, movies like Krull and uh, The Dark Crystal and Willow, uh, of course, the Star Wars movies. But uh, yeah, so, you know, fantasy movies is really what I would love to do, uh, what I would love to get a chance to work on. Um, But really, I'm comfortable in any genre, you know, even if, if my next Ten movies were horror movies, I think i'd still be happy um, because i i i this is a lesson that I learned from Paul Haslinger, which is you can find something about each project and and every note or weird comment that you get still gives you the opportunity to find something that you can get excited about um you know even if it's if it's a genre like um I spit in a grave three is is not the kind of movie that I would love to watch I think um, because it, it's, it's a genre that I just don't have a lot of experience in and, and I'm I'm not too familiar with um, but I, I, I really loved working on it and immersing myself in in the kind of genre that it is um, and and hopefully helping it a little bit with my music um, that that's always the best feeling that when you feel that as a composer you've made a contribution that helped the project, and it helped the filmmakers reach their goal. Those are the moments that you live for as a composer. Those are the, the magical moments that happen. And often, you know, many people don't don't know about it. You know, you, you can be very happy at the end of a project. You feel like you've accomplished something. The filmmakers are very happy, and then the movie is being released and is completely, uh, you know, hated by, by everybody and gets super negative reviews. But, you know, at least you have had that experience. You made somebody happy. Um, and, and, you know, no matter how, how bad the movie may be, there, there are always people who, who feel really passionately about it. You know, I, I, I don't think there is a movie that's, that's universally hated. You know, even movies that are being labeled as, like, worst movie ever, there are some people who really love that stuff. And, and you have to take that seriously and not be cynical about it.
0: <laughs> Absolutely, I mean it's always um hard to to say, well, that's the worst movie ever or that's the best movie that that's ever been released um mm-hmm. you know it's a it's a matter of preference actually, and I think there are many movies out there that I wouldn't consider necessarily good or or a masterpiece, but mm-hmm. they have generally um, really great scores. There, there are so, so many examples of uh, of movies that are, let's say, mediocre, and they have really great scores. And I think there are many really fantastic movies that um, have a poor use of music, <laughs> yeah. um, or generally, um, they have a score that they wouldn't want to to listen to outside of context. So it's yes it's always difficult there is so much so much room basically and um it always depends on the project what the movie needs um what the characters are supposed to um to do and how the composer is supposed to enhance the director's vision so it leaves a lot of room basically
1: absolutely yes there's a very wide range and as you said it's so subjective you know like, uh, you know, some person may tell me that their favorite composer is so-and-so, and I, I might be happy for them, but that person happens to not be my favorite composer, and that's perfectly fine. <laughs> you know, it's, it's a very, very subjective thing. And, um, you know, not, not to go off too much on a tangent, but, you know, I, I sometimes see a lot of animosity um, in, in discussion forums about film music absolutely I, I, and I I don't quite understand it because you know once you understand how subjective it is you just let everybody be and and let them be happy with the kind of music that they love you know you you you're not here in the world to impose your um, you know your 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 musical favorites onto anybody else you know they're yours and yours to keep and it's it's a wonderful thing and uh, you know I think the diversity among film music collectors uh, is is a is a great thing and it's something that all of us can benefit from if we're open to it.
0: <laughs> Absolutely. And as far as these um, discussion forums are concerned, I I visit them every once in a while just mm-hmm. to um, to get a taste of it. You know what what people are um, are discussing. But um, I don't participate. And
1: um, yeah, and neither I... do I. I think they're great sources of information sometimes. Yes, they are. Know? Yeah.
0: Um, yeah, but uh, like you said, there is some so much animosity, and uh, it's always it's hard to um, to read certain certain statements. Yeah, yeah, it is. <laughs> so basically, it's not my world.
1: <laughs> yeah, but I think it all comes from a place of passion. You know, people are just very, very passionate about what they love and what they don't like in film music and they feel like they need to communicate that and they they want people to desperately to agree with them and if they don't then you have the the issues (laughs) which I think are are totally artificial you know Um, but I guess some people enjoy the process of arguing with somebody else online I don't (laughs) me neither (laughs) (laughs) okay
0: um, from all the projects that you've worked on and do you find it more Challenging and more difficult to go for a melodic approach, or do you think it is more difficult to experiment with um, with electronics, electronics, and um, find a certain sound?
1: Well, the easy answer to that is you have to give every project what it requires. You know yeah. that that's what every composer will say. Yeah, you know, it's, I I don't care about what approach it is, as long as it's the right approach for the project and the filmmakers and what they want. And that is, of course, the correct answer. But I think in general, for me personally, and this is just a very personal note, I really love melodies, and I write melodically uh, when I write for myself. And that's where I have where I experience the most joy, just from a personal point of view. Sometimes that's not required, and I would say even in, in most cases, that's not required, because um, melody can be a very powerful thing. And sometimes filmmakers feel that it overshadows what they want to achieve through the acting and the cinematography and the directing. Um, And, uh, you know, I think good directors know when each department of filmmaking can shine. You know, I would say that the best filmmakers take Steven Spielberg, for example. You know, Spielberg has this fantastic um, instinct to, to let certain things speak very loudly and clearly and then go into the background for a little while. You know, sometimes the cinematography may, there's going to be this huge, amazing, cool camera move and the cinematography is in the foreground and you pay attention to it as you should. And then in other cases, the acting is going to be a scene of bravura acting um, and that's when you focus on the acting. And there may be a scene when John Williams's music speaks loudly and clearly and there are barely any sound effects and you focus on the music because you should because the director asks you to yep. and uh, so i think the best directors know how to choreograph those different elements of filmmaking to give each one of them their moments to shine absolutely. um and and that's when you get interesting filmmaking i think
0: absolutely that was a very good explanation on your part actually i think
1: <laughs> thank you okay, yeah
0: <laughs> no it's done. Um, <laughs> It basically um covers everything. I think well Steven Spielberg is one of my all time favorite directors and Yeah, same here. <laughs> and um I think Steven is so comfortable with um every aspect of filmmaking and also comfortable with music. Yeah. And watching his movies I always feel that everything is so well balanced. Absolutely, but, yes. It's just um Steven is one of the um, the greatest, the greatest ever. And um...
1: yes, and and every every detail is is there for a reason. And uh, I I really like the sound mixes in his movies because you can hear the music, you can hear the dialogue, and you can hear the sound effects. <laughs> They're all important, and and none of them seems to be suppressing the other. Um, so it it can be done. It it sometimes I'm sure is difficult, um, but in, in a collaborative environment you can really achieve those things
0: absolutely and mm-hmm. communication is the key to to everything basically yeah and, um, yeah when everybody pitches in you know and just you have to you gotta have a meeting and discuss what you want to do and what you want to express and then eventually i think everything
1: comes together exactly yes and sometimes great surprises may happen even on the dub stage yeah like, even on the dub stage you may discover something that if, if, like in the sound mix, when you push the volume of one thing, all of a sudden, psychologically, something happens that's really interesting. Um, or if you take out the sound effects altogether just for this one shot, you know, something truly fantastic might happen. So, uh, you know, it, it, it goes all the way to the very end. And that's why I keep saying, you know, it's because of those discoveries that happen in the process that filmmakers are, are often, you know, never happy with something that they have to deliver. And when they watch it later, they're like, you know, you know, it, it could have been one more happy discovery away from being truly great. And you know, maybe we should have stuck with it a little longer. Um, but, you know, that that, that just comes, as, this, as I keep saying, it comes with the territory. That's just part of filmmaking.
0: Absolutely. Okay, I guess I am running out of questions. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Well, let me just thank you very much for um, for your time today. It was really great talking to you. It was a pleasure.
1: Same here. Thank you so much for your questions. Thank you for your time. This has been really fun. (laughs) Thank you for your time. And I really enjoyed it. It was a pleasure. And
0: let's do this again sometime yes and i'd be glad to wonderful thank you very much for all the information you shared with me today and
1: yeah see you soon (laughs) definitely thank you so much michael